notes. But today, we're going to do it all in one hour, or one session, uh, and talk about what it means to live life as a Jew, and what are the various steps, or various, I guess, life cycles, or uh, uh, um, just points of, uh, of, uh, of importance uh, throughout the life, and... <clears throat> Uh, and we're going to start, as we know, life starts at birth. at birth, at the beginning, at conception. Anyone has anything else? Con- conception. So we have we have three different votes. No one here agrees. Uh, birth. We have, so at birth. Either way, in Jewish philosophy, life starts before conception. Mm-hmm. This is the only we, we have a radical belief. We're, we're so radical. But it's before conception. Either way, the Talmud tells us a lot of information what happens before conception. And obviously, when we talk about the Talmud giving us information, does it give us needless information? Absolutely not. Thus, whenever we find out something interesting about what happens before life even begins, according to everyone, life does not begin before conception. Uh, Thus, it must have significance. So we talk about life cycles and just kind of the process from birth to earth or beginning to end. It's important to note that the Talmud starts even before, or Jewish philosophy talks about what happens before conception. So I want to do, um, as, a, as a start, is talk about some of the few statements that we find uh, in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish literature about what happens before conception, and try to um, use it maybe as, um, maybe, or try to glean the lessons that perhaps were intended with those, uh, with those pieces of information, even though it seems uh, very irrelevant. So let's let's talk about one. Oh, there's two of them specifically, and both of them kind of share the same flavor, and you'll see. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the first one we find in the tractate. Uh, tractate is the name of a book, a book of the Talmud. If you hear the term tractate, uh, the Talmud is a collection of sixty-three books, and they're called tractates. Fantastic. So one of the tractates is the book of Sota, and right at the beginning, uh, in page two a. And as a quick aside, the Talmud starts with, with, with page number two. It doesn't start with number one. So if everyone quotes a Talmud from number like 1A or 1B, they're making it up because that doesn't exist. So 2A, and the reason why it's called A and B is because two different sides of a page, right? Page got side A, side B. So 2A, right? The first page, uh, it says as follows. 40 days before the formation of a fetus, a prophetic voice announces, this fetus will marry so-and-so, this fetus will own such-and-such field, this fetus will own such-and-such house. Thus, the Talmud tells us that there are three elements of a person's life that seem to be prophetically announced before the child is even conceived. Number one, who will they marry? Number two, what field they will own? And number three, what house they will live in, okay? Now, if I ask you guys, we live in 2015, most of us don't own fields. Most of us are not farmers. But in yesteryear, your land and your agriculture, was that was your livelihood. Mm-hmm. Thus, a person, the, the, the field that someone owned, that, that someone owned, basically meant the livelihood that they would have. That is all declared 40 days before the conception of the child. Now, the question is, what is the significance? First of all, does that mean that we should just, like, is there a way for us to know what this prophecy is? Is there a way for us to, you know, hear the echoes of it years later? Probably not. 
So there's a prophecy that we cannot even hear. Does anyone hear it? Who knows? Is, is it the person? Who, it, it seems like a very hard piece of information to try to utilize. What could possibly be the significance of such information? Maybe a subconscious thing. Maybe, but... Uh, what we know that there was announced, and we don't know what it is. Wouldn't it be easier if everyone got like a printout uh, that came, you know, baby came out holding, you know, document documentation with the social security number of their intended spouse and the yeah, the lot, you, you know, the lot, the plat number of, of their of their lot and their house and kind of the floor models. Wouldn't that be easier? So there's a prophecy, but we don't know about it. What's the significance of forty? That's another question. Let's hold off and let's talk about more of the core. You're, you're, you're talking about the ancillary part of, the, of that particular statement. So I want to uh, present an idea that maybe y'all will agree, maybe you won't, with, you won't agree. <clears throat> no, no, no. We're going to be very, 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 very practical. Very practical. What is the most important decision of someone's life? The most important decision? Yes. Is to be born. Well, the person doesn't decide that. It happens against your will. You made that, made, people make that decision. The most important decision you'll make, probably most people, is who they'll marry. That's the most impactful decision, number one. What is um, the most important, uh, or maybe we should say the second most important decision, but what's the thing that someone spends the most time with? with doing? It's what their livelihood. Right? That's what you do. You, know, you work you know, eight to ten hours a day. That's what you do you know, for 40, 50 years. And what's the most important investment of a person's life? What's the most expensive thing most people buy is their home. So we talk about the, some of the, perhaps the three most important things that dominate our lives. You know, our spouse, our our job, and our and our house. You know, that's what dominates our lives. Mm-hmm. Says the Talmud. From God's perspective, these things were dealt with and done with before you were conceived. Its importance is so infinitesimally small from God's view that it was already determined and it was on the table and it was off the table before conception. It's of such minimal importance that from God's perspective, and I'm I'm, I'm stressing that again, from God's perspective, it was already dealt with and done with before conception. How so? We have a uh, have, have a physical or geocentric, I like to call it geocentric perspective on the world. What we see, what we interact with, what uh, what we relate to on a sensory level is only the physical world. Mm-hmm. Thus, uh, the person that we're going to spend our life with is very important. That's very important spiritual level as well, but it's very important. Mm-hmm. So we think about a lot. Uh, and our livelihood is very important. So we, so we, you know, most people, you know, they think about their salary and they think about their money and they're working their job and their projects to job and their house is what, you know, this is the decision that, 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 that they grapple with for a long time. That is us because we're physical and we're physically oriented. Says God, from my perspective, those things are so unimportant, so insignificant that I don't even want to talk to them, to, about them. I don't want to deal with them. It's a prophecy done before conception before before the, the 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 thought of who you are even materialized well well yeah you're 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 being a little bit more spiritual than i am what i'm saying is like this i'm saying from god's perspective from the spiritual perspective that's that that that, that you're, you're taking it kind of more to more of a practical level okay we shouldn't even think about that i'm not saying that i'm saying that's what we think about that's the reality it's, it's, it's unchanging for most of us However, what we have to know, and that's what the lesson, it's a lesson in the Talmud, what we have to know that from our spiritual side, from our soul side, right, that's not important at all. 
And our goal in our life is to strive to gain a more soulful attitude towards life. And that is to care about the things that are eternal, the things that are lasting, the things that the soul cares about, much less our bodily, materialistic, animalistic agenda that we have. That's number one. <coughs> the, the, oh, no, I have one over here with my notes on it. <coughs> the other statement. Um, hello, Rochelle. We're talking about, no, no problem. We're talking about life cycles. Uh, the other statement that we find in the Talmud uh, that, uh, that talks about uh, before, uh, before life, before conception, is as follows. This one here is a little bit more, uh, it's, it's got a little bit more uh, visualization. It says as follows. And I'm going to quote it, and if you ask me questions about things I don't know, either I'll make up an answer or I'll say I don't know. Most likely the latter. <laughs> it, this is a quote from the Talmud in Nida, Tracte Nida. It is the very last of the 63 books. And it's from page 16b. And it says as follows. The angel who is in charge, who is tasked with conception, the angel's name is Lila. Lila means night. Okay. And the, this angel takes this drop. The drop is a reference to, uh, it seems like it's a reference to the uh, material that's going to contribute to life. And brings it and presents it in front of the Almighty and asks, quote, what does it ask? This drop, will it be intelligent? Will it be a chacham? Will it be wise? Or will it be silly? Will it be stupid? Right? Number one. Number two, will this drop be a rich person, wealthy or poor? Number three, will this person be strong or weak? And all those three things are determined before conception. When it's still just a drop. Yes. However, whether the person will be righteous or wicked, that is not discussed. Concludes the Talmud. All is in the hands of heaven, aside from fear of heaven. Thus, once again, the Talmud says that, a, that something is determined before life begins. Will the person be wealthy or poor? Wealth? Will the person be intelligent or not so sharp, not exactly the sharpest uh, pencil in the, uh, the cabinet, what do they say? Uh, or the brightest light bulb, the brightest bulb in the room? And uh, will the person be strong or weak? Thus, the three areas where we, us humans, we take pride in more than any other, intelligence, uh, material success, and physical prowess, those three things, says the Talmud, are already predetermined. However, what is not determined is our righteousness and our, or, or versus our wickedness. That, that's up to us. Now, You'll say, wait a minute, Rabbi, are you trying to tell me that there's nothing we can do to improve or, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, or, or somehow change our lot with regards to our finances? Absolutely not. Because, in fact, the same Talmud in Tractate Nida says, what does a person need to do to become wealthy? Mm-hmm. Perhaps the lesson here is as follows, or likewise, that what we take pride in, what we fancy as success in life, be it our physique, or our money, or our brilliance, that's predetermined. Does that mean we cannot hone it? We cannot improve it? We cannot uh, take actions to, uh, to better that part? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that from the Torah's perspective, from the spiritual perspective, 
All that matters is whether you're righteous or wicked. Everything else, it's immaterial. We consider it as if it was was already predetermined. So I think those two lessons are kind of very important when we talk about what the Jewish mindset is about life. You know, the Jewish perspective, from the Jewish perspective, um, life is, uh, is, uh, is about our righteousness versus our wickedness. That is the ultimate uh, conflict of our lives. So in the big picture of, you know, we talk, we, 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 we could zoom in on the various different uh, uh, points in time. Uh, the 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 uh, train station stops that we make in Jewish practice, but big picture. When I ask you the question, is what does the Jewish? What's the Jewish view on life itself? Here, from these Talmud, Talmudic sources, they seem to indicate that it's about a pursuit. It's a pursuit of what of righteousness, and it's a struggle against what our body or what our instinct is is telling us is important. Right? Are the questions of you know what's our livelihood? What are what, what, what you know money uh, um, uh, the the pursuit of, of 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 wealth of 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 intellectual achievements all those things not so important. So would they go back <clears throat> to the birthright a lot? Some of the what you're just saying. The what birthright? The birthright of a boy before he's born. I mean, you know, before he's consumed. What you're just saying is. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're referring to. Okay. The birthright. You have a birth. You the first born. Yet? No. I'm sorry? You didn't receive it. You know what I'm yeah. just saying? So does that have anything to do with Oh, the Bechorah? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't see what that would have to do with it. I mean, would it know before you were born? Before what, you who, what, what would who know? Would the parents know before you were conceived that, that the birthright, like... I don't know what the parents know. I know I have a firstborn son. I don't know anything. <laughs> no kidding? Still trying to figure things out. <laughs> no kidding? Where are you in the line? How many of them? I wondered how many Wolbies were there? There's nine Wolbies. I'm one of nine. I have eight siblings. I have seven, six brothers and two sisters. You're number. I'm number six. I'm the fifth boy, but I'm the most remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only sixteen percent, but I I pull my weight. But I guess not sixteen. I'd be a lot more. I'd be eleven percent. Well, I said it because of the land that that he gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the law of inheritance. A lot of inheritance. Uh, the firstborn son, son only, uh, gets gets inheritance. Now, the inheritance of sons versus daughters, uh, the daughters get support versus, uh, you know, for the son getting inheritance. So, so if there's only enough money for one, the daughter would get it. But they're determined before. Uh, well, well, that, that, that's not just determined beforehand. That's that's just the reality. Whoever's the firstborn, you don't have to, you don't have to be uh, the angel or the uh, prophet to figure that out. Who's the oldest child, right? Right. Yes. Yes, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so that's so birth. Um, oh, a few more quotes. I'm, I'm yeah. excited to. No, I'm excited to get <laughs> down to the bottom. Very I'm like, well, no, so I'm really. I don't feel bad. What's I'm that? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. It's about the bottom. Uh, about baby naming. No, oh, the certificates. Oh, yes. Well, we. Got, yes. 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 Okay. She. She wants to see you get to the end. Yeah, uh, no. Okay. 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 So I will move on uh, expeditiously. Thank you. Okay, uh, a few more things. Uh, a few more things uh, pre-birth that uh, that I think are important. Uh, that is the soul. Um, when does someone get a soul? Does someone get soul at birth or conception? So the Talmud has a discussion about that. In fact, this is one of the four conversations we have recorded 
of a dialogue between rabbi, and who's rabbi? If you remember, we talked about this during the second history class. Rabbi is Rabbi Judah the Prince, the codifier of the Mishnah. Uh, he uh, was born in the uh, 130s, uh, and he uh, he lived in the end, um, the middle to end of the second century of the Common Era, and he's one of the pivotal pivotal characters in, in Jewish history. He organized the Mishnah, and he was a close personal friend of the emperor, the Roman emperor, uh, whose name is Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. And the Talmud recounts uh, several dialogues that they had. One of them was the question of when does someone get a soul, and uh, and the. The Talmud also deals with the question, when does someone get a Yetzer Ra? When does someone get the evil inclination? So, so it has this dialogue, and eventually it says that someone gets the, uh, someone gets the Nishama, the soul, at conception, and the Yetzer the evil inclination, at birth. Thus, mm-hmm. these two foes, or these two opposites, that cause so much strife, internal strife, uh, amongst humans uh, throughout their lives... Uh, during during uh, gestation, mm-hmm. right, w- during uh, when the child's in utero, uh, there's no conflict. Thus, the Talmud declares that a child in utero studies the whole Torah. Thus, uh, there are those that argue that when you you're sitting on the on the on the private bus on the packed bus and the pregnant woman walks in, you have to stand up for two reasons: mm-hmm. number one, to give her the seat; but number two, because she is right now. Holding a child right, who studied the whole Torah. When you have someone who studied the whole Torah, you got to stand up yeah. out of honor, <laughs> right? Ch- well, doesn't seem to say that doesn't seem to make that that distinction. It seems like every soul, Jewish or otherwise, has this tremendous spiritual power that itself knows the Torah. It's like it's like the DNA without learning it even. What happens, the Talmud makes a, a nice visualization about that. As the child is being born, an angel comes and hits him in his mouth. You ever heard this? It's a very famous Talmudic piece. This is once again from Tractate Nida, the one we mentioned, the very last one, but it's not at 16b, it's at 30b. And it, it tells us what happens to the child as the child is being born. And it says that an angel comes and smacks him on the mouth. So there are those that say that this little indentation that uh, us humans have on our top of our lip uh, is because of the angel smacking us so hard. Oh, that's why. That's why we get it. Uh, that's probably that's nonsense because I think they did a they they do these um, these uh, ultrasounds where they see the child and the child has it already. Uh, either way, that's what it says. What happens means what happens. Child has a soul but does not have the influence of the evil inclination. Thus, it's just an untethered soul. It's like pure spirituality. It knows the whole Torah. It doesn't even need to be taught. If you remember, we spoke about Abraham. Abraham knew the whole Torah. How did he know the whole Torah before Moses shows up? Because he tapped into the power. He was able to yeah. dig deep and to, to, to uncover the soul in its full uh, uh, unhindered potential to remove the influence of the inclination, thus to restore it to the state of the child in utero, and thus to have the whole Torah innately. As the child is about to be born, they get slapped upon them the evil inclination, the forces of the evil inclination, and voila, they forget it. Not because it disappeared, but now it's covered by a mountain of influence that's deleterious to Torah study, right? That's the evil inclination. And we could argue that the goal of our lives is to try to restore that order wherein the power of the soul shines forth once again, 
child knows the whole Torah once again. Pretty, pretty powerful. And I want to say one more quick thing uh, before birth, if I may. I assure you we'll get to the end today, even if it means skipping, like, lots of things. Yes. <laughs> uh, I said it. This, this is a two-part class, I know. We'll do it. We'll do it. I'll skip some stuff. Um, like a dull hold responsibility. Responsibility is not for our generation. Skip that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it says as follows, just a very poignant um, uh, statement. The last thing that happens to the child in utero is they make him swear. They make the child swear. Right before he's going to get the influence of the evil inclination, they make him swear as follows. You should know that the soul is pure and as pure as the angels and as and, and God on the same pedestal, right? And you have to preserve it in its purity. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. Strive to be righteous. And even if the entire world tells you, oh, you're righteous, you're righteous, don't, don't let it get to your head. Mm-hmm. Right? You should still think that you have room to improve. That's it. If we, if we were to distill our life's mission, it would be preserve the purity of our soul. Don't let it be influenced by this new power that's going to be shoved upon it, the evil inclination. And that's it. And even if we think we did that, everyone in the world tells us we're righteous, we should still consider ourselves somewhat wicked. We still have room to improve. Don't get complacent. Don't take your foot off the pedal. Birth, baby naming. Now, what's the significance of baby naming? So, uh, there's this rumor, I, I don't know, I've heard it so many times, but I've never seen it actually sourced anywhere that these parents, parents have prophecy when it comes to the name of a child. I don't know, man. We just picked, we have four children, we just picked names. <laughs> I, I didn't feel any like, ooh, inspiration. I guess in retrospect, you kind of think, why do we think of those names? Well, it's just, maybe there is something to it. Either way, uh, the significance of names is very important. Uh, there, it, it's very important to give children Jewish names. Um, uh, the Rashi tells us, I think it's a Midrash, uh, that uh, asks the question, in what merit did the, did the Jews have uh, that uh, enabled them to get uh, this wonderful exodus from Egypt? We know the Jewish people, their spiritual state uh, when they were in Egypt was rather low. Uh, they weren't doing mitzvahs, they were idolaters, uh, comparable to the Egyptians. W- what gives? Like, Why did they merit to have such a miraculous exodus from Egypt? So it says three things. It says that they didn't change their names, they didn't change their clothes, and they didn't change their language. Now, the significance of these three things, it seems bizarre. Okay, so they had Jewish names. They were called Yankel and Shmerel instead of, like, I don't know, Bob and, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, Jason, right? Well, so what? Who cares? Where, where, is there a mitzvah in the Torah to have a Jewish name? No. Does the Torah give us like a dress code? What's a Jewish dress? Is it like, I don't know, the big hats that they wear nowadays? Mm-hmm. Like, wh- wh- what does it even mean? You know, you know, the, the language, is there a mitzvah to speak Hebrew? Is it Hebrew? Like, what's the significance? And that it's so significant. This is the merit of the Jewish people that they merited to, to, to leave Egypt in such a miraculous fashion. Very, very interesting uh, statement. Uh, so I want to propose, once again, preposition, uh, that perhaps what the lesson is as follows. When the Jewish people were in Egypt, indeed, they sinned and they, uh, they fell to a low spiritual level that made them, indeed, from their actions, from their behavior, uh, not worthy of, of, of redemption. However, they maintained a strong Jewish identity. They maintained, uh, they were culturally Jewish. 
and as defined by things as superficial as a name. I have a Jewish name. You're a little bit different. You dress a little bit different. You speak a little bit different. You're not totally like everyone else. You still maintain, I'm Jewish. That's the last frontier. When a Jew drops everything, no more practice, no more, nothing, but they still maintain a Jewish identity, they still have Jewish pride, they still walk around carrying, I'm Jewish, I'm a little bit different, even if it's only manifest in superficial matters, they're still Jewish. And if they're still Jewish, there's always hope for them to come back. Once a Jew loses even that delicate and seemingly insignificant feeling of being Jewish and of a certain pride and identity of Jewish, well, then they, they can't be redeemed. Thus, when we name our kid, we name the kid with a Jewish name. And we say, despite you know, what we are and where we're holding in life and what we're doing in life, and you know, perhaps we're living lives as Jews that maybe you know, need more encouragement to be more active in their Judaism. Still, we give the child a Jewish name. And maybe we'll call them by their secular name and whatever. They have a Jewish name. They have a Jewish identity. It's very, very important. And not only that, we talk about the rest of the Jewish, you know, Jewish child growing up. You know, it should be something that they know. I've met Jews. They didn't know they were Jewish. I, I have a, 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 a friend of mine, a student slash friend, whatever, in Israel. And he, he grew up in, in, in Lebanon. And he grew up like as a... I don't know, I think it was a, a Lebanese Christian, but he was Jewish. You know, he didn't convert it like that. He was just a, a straight up Jew. We didn't know until much later. And then he found out somehow, uh, and he had a remarkable journey back to Judaism. You know? So it's important for Jewish parents to ensure that their children know they're Jewish and know perhaps even what that means and try to live life as a Jew. Right, let's move on here. Shalom Zachar. As we mentioned, Shalom Zachum is the party that is made. There's a traditional party made. Um, the first Friday night, bless you, first Friday night after a baby boy is born. Now, why baby boy? Baby boy, uh, not a baby girl. Um, so, or, or why, why, this, why this blessing uh, uh, at all? Because uh, of, if y'all remember, we just mentioned that a child utero knows the whole Torah. They're born, they forget the whole Torah. Can you imagine, like, what would life be like for someone who had a billion dollars and lost it all overnight, and now has zero dollars, and has to go to the unemployment line? That person would be in such need, he would be in such mourning, like, they'd be at risk, they'd be on the suicide hotline on the speed dial, right? That's, that's That's what it would be. So the child, the child had, the child had the whole Torah. That child forgets it all, then knows nothing, absolutely zero, totally ignorant to Torah. And over the course of lives, hopefully they'll, they'll, you know, they'll build themselves back up. Maybe yes, maybe no. It's up to them, right? Either way, the child's soul is in mourning. What's the point of learning it? I know he forgets it. Is it to instill like basic subconscious values? That's one reason. But uh, the way I presented that, that idea, it's not just about learning. It's a reality. It's just this reality. If an untethered soul is going to know it, it doesn't need to learn anything. And, and it's exactly because it has that same period in the same pedestal as God and the angels. Uh, but yes, there are many people when they come back to Torah and they kind of feel like they've been there, you know, like it's a, like kind of a deja vu moment. Like when you have a dream about somebody and they're actually in this situation, like, oh, good, I've been here before. I don't know if you guys have that. Not, it happens to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh no, I've been here before. Let's not think about that too much. And we don't know where to go with it. 
but that's what kind of happens to people. Like they, they study Torah and they're like, whoa, you know, it sounds vaguely, vaguely familiar. So there is that element. But also, you know, it's easier to come back to something you've known before, even if you don't remember that you've known it before. Uh, but when the child forgets it, they need to have uh, uh, com- uh, comforting. Uh, thus, they made this party. Now, a girl, um, <coughs> uh, women typically don't uh, don't uh, don't uh, study Torah uh, in the same manner as as men. Uh, thus, the party is in a slightly different, more celebratory uh, manner. Either way, another important idea that we see that every milestone in a Jewish life, or every milestone in our life, has to have part and parcel with that a celebration and appreciation and gratitude for that. Thus, when something good happens to you, right, we say thank you. In Jewish practice, we have a, there, there's a mitzvah to say a blessing every time you use the restroom. Right? Now, that can happen many times a day. Depends what the size of your uh, bladder is. Right? Uh, and we take it for granted. Until... You know, hopefully it's never happened to us, but until you can't do it or, you, you know, you need help doing that. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, you know, you, then you stop taking it for granted. Uh, because we have such a vast network within our bodies. You know, the, your body's able to consume something and it could separate all the good and all the positive and the minerals and vitamins and whatnot. And that it takes into the body for, for nourishment and the waste it just sends out and it's all seamless. It's all integrated and never needs to be fixed until it does. But we take it for granted. And even something as inconsequential, at least in our minds, inconsequential as going to use the restroom, Jewish life, Jewish practice, Jewish teachings tells us, stop, appreciate it. How much more so? Baby's born. What a delight. What a miracle. Like, uh, you know, if, if, if you were just an alien dropped in on a, on, a, on, a, on a parachute into this world, and you wouldn't believe it, you know. How does this contribute to a new baby fully functioning with all the with all the organs and the intelligence and the personality? And that's it's just insane. Um, something like that is a cause for celebration, a celebration of appreciation to the Almighty. Uh, circumcision. So there's a mitzvah in the Torah, one of the very first mitzvahs uh, of to circumcise uh, young boys. Now. Uh, this this has a uh, there's a problem with it uh, because when we're doing circumcision, we're essentially saying that the child is b- brought to this world almost perfect, but not perfect. There is a flaw that the child has that needs to be rectified. It's as if the Almighty kind of uh, you, you know just didn't do a full job, you know? and it, indeed that's a problem, but it's actually true. We don't believe that we're perfect. We believe we're here on a mission. To perfect. Why is that? Because our body is imperfect. We talk about the struggle that exists, this, this, this conflict, the tension that exists between our body and soul. It's because they're opposites. The, if the soul is on the same pedestal as God, the body is on the most radically opposite extreme. Right? It's on the same pedestal as animals. Right? Uh, it's, it, it's, it cannot, it's so diametrically opposite. There's no commonality. Thus, we are imperfect. And our goal in life is to perfect. Thus, uh, from the onset, from the beginning of a child's life, they have this emblazoned into their, into their body. Wherein they say, I was imperfect. I was imperfect in my body on just a purely physical level. That was 
taken care of right from day one. However, the rest of my life is going to be a constant struggle to make sure that my body is uh, on its way to perfection. Now, if you'll notice, uh, this might be a little bit, uh, um, uh, it's very visual, like the, the, what, what happens uh, in, in, in Jewish literature, they talk about this revealing of the crown, uh, wherein the, the circumcision, what, what it does, obviously, there's a removal of the, of the excess and the revealing of the crown. This is all indicative of the, of the mission of a Jew. The mission of the Jew is to reveal the crown of God of the world. If we talk about tikkun olam, fixing the world, why is the world broken? It, yes, but more than that. Sin is a manifestation of a bigger, bigger problem. That is lack of God. There's no God. So if there's no God, then there's sin. We don't see God. We see people sinning. We see people doing, uh, you know, sin, uh, sinning, which is acting in a way as if God's not there. So the world is flawed. Our goal individually, personally, but collectively, nationally as well, is to rectify that, to fix the world. And what happens in a fixed world? Everyone does see God. Mm-hmm. And this is all manifest in, in the process of circumcision. It's, it's a, there's, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of symbolism in that, wherein you get rid of the bad, mm-hmm. and then what happens? What do you see? You expose the, the crown of God. That's some of the ideas behind circumcision. There's more that uh, the the idea of 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 being branded as a Jew, the idea of 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 of, of King David in the bathhouse. He didn't didn't have any mitzvahs with him, and then he then he then he saw, oh gosh, I have at least one mitzvah. There's one mitzvah that always accompanies us. It's personal to us. Uh, there's more to that. Uh, either way, um, it's also uh, coincidentally at the location where. Uh, the greatest challenges of of a person's lives usually lie, or at least at least a man's life. Um, Does that mean that women are a bit more perfect? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, chop. Well, chop. removed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. 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 Uh, yes. So, so the, uh, the, uh, that is that is uh, that is noted. That uh, that remember, women didn't send the golden calf. Um, uh, traditionally, what's always been the man sinning, and the women are, are always viewed as being uh, more spiritually perfect. And I was uh, reading where it said that you know because God He fashioned the real. Yeah, I made sure it's perfect. <laughs> okay, Pidyon um, Ben. So, uh, firstborn son, uh, who's the first. Of the mother's uh, exiting the mother's womb, is going to have what's called a pidyon ben. Now, if the woman has had an abortion before, or if the child's born in a C-section, uh, this wouldn't apply. Also, won't apply if the mother or the father are descendants of Kohanes or Levies. So, like for we had an opportunity, we did not have an opportunity for pidyon ben because my wife's father is a Levi or a Levy. So the, both of them have to be Israelites. So it's a, it's it, it's almost it's it, we'd say uh, probably like twenty percent of, of firstborns qualify. Well, twenty percent well, is still a lot. Twenty percent of a lot of a lot of Jews. Yeah, it's like one in four. One in five. Um, uh, well, or one in four. Whatever. It might be twenty five percent. Who knows? Uh, so it has to be a firstborn son. Now, now so, and what happens? They have to be redeemed, as if they belong to God, so to speak, and you got to buy them back with cash. So if he's a really bratty kid from day one, he say, maybe I'll hold off. Let me make the decision later. Um, now, why is that? Why is that? 
So the reason behind this is that the firstborn son has a greater spiritual sensitivity. Uh, if you know, if you noted the last of the ten plagues with the death of the firstborn, why the firstborn die? Right? There was a certain spark or a certain uh, a certain exposure of spirituality that only if you had the spiritual antennae uh, to pick it up would you actually feel it. Right? Most most people didn't have that same wavelength. Thus. The firstborn, they, they, they were able to perceive it. They couldn't handle it. They died. The firstborn of the Jews were, were saved. It's not like that they were able to contain it. They were saved. Mm-hmm. And they were consecrated as being spiritual. Fast forward to the golden calf. Golden calf, there's sin. And then there is one remarkable group that, that does not participate in the sin. That's the Kohens. And, and then the uh, spiritual leadership of the Jewish people and the uh, the men the of cloth of the Jewish people are transformed from, from the firstborn of every family to the family of the Kohens. Uh, so therefore, essentially, every firstborn boy is supposed to belong to God's service. Right? Just that they're not belonging to God's service, so they have for themselves to be bought back. But that's the idea behind it. But if the family is from, Israel, from a Kohen or a Levi, they don't have to participate uh, in that. Uh, so that's that. A lot of people uh, find out that they're that they're firstborns and they needed to be bought back, but they never were bought back. And then when they're twenty five, they do it. There's there's no end point. If someone finds out about this when they're ninety eight, uh, then they uh, they they participate in that as well. That's not so expensive. It's five gold coins. So you take five silver dollars, you're good to go. Okay. So if you know any uh, any Jews that are firstborn firstborn boys whose parents did not, I know I have a friend, uh, a friend of mine from Cleveland. He, he was a firstborn. Then he had to call up his mom, and he he only found out about this when he was like twenty eight. He had to call up his mom. He's like, uh, "Mom, I have some more questions. Like, did you ever have an abortion, or uh, did you was I born, or any like miscarriages? I could never. Is that hilarious? Is she's like, no, no, okay, fine. I need to be by myself. Was your first, he explained it. To him. He didn't, it wasn't it wasn't uh, as crass, <laughs> but it's still a funny conversation. Uh, okay, let's fast forward to Upsharon. So Upsharon is a custom. Remember, the, the, what, what, what preceded was mitzvahs. The bris is that's a mitzvah of the Torah. It's a commandment of the Torah. It's not optional, right? It's mandatory. Uh, the next one, Peter Ben, not optional, mandatory. This is a custom. It's optional, right? You may have the custom, you may not have the custom. What this is, is that you leave, if you ever see a little boy, a Jewish boy with long hair, Right, it's it's adorable, right? But uh, they may be a boy. Don't be so sure that I, I know. I've had I have three sons, and my oldest two were confused. Oh, she is adorable. Well, actually, she is a he, and yeah, it also happened with a name like Akiva to the southwest southwest representative that I spoke to yesterday. Oh, uh, she he said he confused her as a girl. Like, uh, what's her what's her confirmation number? No, actually, that her is a, is a is a boy. Look at him. Uh, so uh, so that's that. So they they will leave their hair grow, hair grow for th- uh, for three years. At the age at the age of three, they uh, get a hair cut. Uh, there's lots of meaning behind it. Let's skip that. Um, either way, there is there is something to it. There is meaning behind it but with the oral and whatnot. Uh, but it's not a mitzvah; it's a custom. We good. Simplified. Uh, it has to do with uh, a tree. 
Now, a man is compared to a tree, but a tree, a tree, a, a fruit bearing tree, with the mitzvah of the first three years to not to not consume the fruits of the tree. If a tree is uh, planted in Israel, it's called Orla. So that's the idea behind it, the custom, where the first three years we don't consume and the hair, whatever. We follow the custom to a point. You know, we don't wait till three. It's, if it's someone's like two and change, and there's a nice family occasion, he makes a nice party. He had to cut his own hair. It's you know, it's traumatic. They look all different. It's cute. Uh, the, you know, that's when they start putting other tzitzit or their kippah, whatever. Okay, uh, that's upshare. Barabat mitzvah. So this is an important thing. We have barabat mitzvah as a ceremony. We have it as a production. We have it as where the child goes to the spotlight. Now, historically, it was not like that. Historically, is it was always a transformation from doing mitzvahs, following the Torah, even though you're not obligated to do so, and suddenly one day you're obligated, so the child will suddenly start wearing tefillin. Yeah, that one might be uh, the that one, that might be the only uh, practical change for a child uh, during uh, you know a traditional sense. Nowadays, it became a production. Oftentimes, unfortunately, it does not mark the beginning of someone's life in Judaism, but unfortunately, all too often, it marks the end of their participation. You did your bar mitzvah. You read your Torah, you did the Bar Mitzvah lesson, you spent that whole year with the cantor or whatnot, you read from the Wastel, you gave a speech, you had the party, you're done. Right? You did your penance, right? You did your time. Right? Now you can abandon ship. Unfortunately, in Judaism, Bar Mitzvah means now you're obligated in a mitzvah. That's what it means. Now is when it starts, not when it ends. A child at, at, at 13 and a, a girl at 12, traditionally, because they mature earlier, both physically and uh, just behaviorally or intellectually, uh, that's what they're obligated in every single mitzvah, all 613 at once. It starts from zero to, to, to 613. Thus, the Talmud always tells us, and Jewish tradition has always been to teach a child before that, right? train them in. Right? A Jewish family right, lives Jewishly or teaches the children to, be, to live as Jews way before that, from day one. It's, you can't just flip a switch on and say, "Oh, you're starting to keep all the mitzvahs." Oh, this is what we do. This is what we do. This, is, this is what, you know, you can't do that. You know, it's got to be. It's got to be progressive. It's got to be a buildup, and it's just a, a minor shift. Unfortunately, I want to make a statement against this. Uh, all too often, it's not the beginning; it's the end. Uh, adult responsibility. We spoke about that. We'll skip that. We don't believe in responsibility. That today's generation. Uh, marriage. Uh, so marriage. Uh, what's, there's a lot to say, and uh, there's obviously multiple classes that could be talked about this this subject. But either way, I'll share one idea about Jewish marriage. Uh, the first marriage we find is the marriage of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's marriage in Jewish uh, in Jewish practice is always viewed as a model marriage. In fact, under the chuppah, under the under the under the um, uh, under the uh, wedding canopy. We read seven blessings. One of them is I'm going to say it in Hebrew. Maybe should I say it in Hebrew? No, it's Hebrew here. It means like this: Gladden the husband and wife, the bride and groom, like you, like you made happy Adam and Eve, right? In the Garden of Eden, in yesteryear, we are telling the young couple your job, your role, your role models in marriage is to be like Adam and Eve. Now, if you actually learn Genesis, you'll find that Adam and Eve did not seem to have a, uh, uh, a marriage uh, uh, that you would associate with harmony and love. Uh, so it's, it's a bizarre thing. You know, the, why are they used 
why are they put on a pedestal as being the model of a marriage? It seems very awkward, very, very strange, very bizarre, very peculiar, very odd. Uh, perhaps, huh? Uh, well, okay, maybe, but this uh, it doesn't have to be miserable. It doesn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it would, it would, it would be, but either way... We find the following statement uh, or the following uh, episode in Genesis before the apple story. We find, uh, like you mentioned, the rib, right? And what does Adam say after that? Adam, Adam makes a declaration. He says, This time, this is flesh for my flesh. This is a bone for my bones. This woman I'll call Isha, because she was taken from Isha Lukacha, because she was taken from it. He gets all excited. He's like, Oh, this is my new toy. I'm so excited with it. This is me, my wife. Okay, well, that's a nice thing for a husband to say, right? Uh, he's all excited with his wife. And then the Torah goes into PSA mode. It says as follows. Which translates, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and there should be one flesh. And you ask yourself the question, wait a minute, we're in the middle of a whole story about a rib and building this the woman, and suddenly Adam is so excited, this is flesh for my flesh, this is bone for my bones, I'm going to call this woman uh, Isha, because she was taken from me, all excited, and what's the punchline? Therefore, who, who are you talking to? You're talking to us, the reader. A man shall leave his father and his mother, okay, move out of the basement, got that, cleave to his wife, and there should be one flesh. What, how does this possibly fit in? What is the flow here? It seems to be out of place. Maybe this should be on, you know, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Suggestions. How to have a happy marriage, leave your parents, move out of the basement. Okay, that's probably a good idea. Uh, you don't want to have too much sparring with, you know, your wife with your mother. It's not a good idea, right? Uh, cleave to your wife. Okay, makes sense. Right? You get involved and become one flesh. You know. Perhaps what the Talmud is, what, what, what the Torah is saying is as follows. Adam and Eve demonstrate the one most important quality that's going to make or break every marriage. What did Adam declare? This time, this is flesh from my flesh. This is bones from my bones. This is the woman that I want. But he basically, this is me. What he's saying, this is me. The Torah is telling us that for a marriage to work, that must be the attitude. This is me. We are no longer two separate entities with two identities, with two perceptions and, and everything in life. We're one. I know this sounds cliche. It sounds, uh, it, it, sound, it sounds like a platitude. You've heard this before. Okay? But there's a deep lesson behind it. Leave your father and your mother. What if you already left your father when you've been independent since, since you were 18? Right? <laughs> what if you're not living with your parents? It means much more than that. It means you have to craft a new identity. All of us from day one, we start a life with our parents. And we lived our individual life, individual aside from our spouse. We have our thoughts on things. We have our perceptions on life. Every one of a myriad of a thousand or a million different situations or, or, or issues in life, we have our perspective. We have to leave our father and mother. I'm making quotation marks for those listening online. Right? We have to abandon that. Marriage is going to take a little bit of compromise. 
a little bit of going away from something we're comfortable with, our father and mother. Cleave to our spouse and become, become one flesh. Who demonstrated this more than Adam and Eve, who were indeed from the same flesh? Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And what happens? Every marriage, at the beginning of the marriage, under the wedding canopy, what do we tell the husband and, husband and wife, the bride and, uh, bride and groom? You guys, you should know, you're starting this off wonderful. It's a process of integration. This is not going to be easy because compromise is never easy. Because compromise means denying yourself something. You're going to have to deny yourself. What? Nothing means small, something very big. Something which encompasses all of what you are. Your identity. Your father and mother. What you grew up with in life. Because in order to create something new, a new union, a new singular unified union, you have to abandon the old one. You have to leave your father and mother. Cleave your wife and become one flesh. Indeed, Adam and Eve did not have a hunky-dory, harmonious marriage. They fought. It was ugly. Right? Right. Too long, don't read, whether they say T-L-D-R. Right? That's what it was, right? That, that, it didn't seem to be as, you know, as pleasant, maybe, as you, you would like. However, there was one quality that they demonstrated that we all have to model our marriages after. Adam and Eve, the attitude, flesh for my flesh, bone for my bone, that is... The, uh, that is the attitude that we have to have when we get married. So if you are not ready for that, you're not ready for marriage. If you're not ready to abandon something, you're not give up something, mm-hmm. you're not ready for marriage. Because in, in order to create a single unit, a single u- entity, one marriage, you have to abandon separate identities. Yes, you could have, you could live in separate, you can have separate TV remotes and separate bedrooms and separate cars and separate bank accounts and separate lives. That, that is possible. And that does work. Right, it does work, but it's not a marriage. That's not. It's not a marriage. That, <laughs> I was gonna say, who's marriage? Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, a lot of marriages, unfortunately, do work like that. And even though they're married, uh, they're married, but they're not really married. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that's a nice idea. Now the wedding process, uh, That's uh, we'll skip all of those. Uh, but that that's part of the wedding process. I don't know what they even put in here. Uh, laws of family purity. That is very interesting. Let's, let's talk about that, guys. Let's look at the end, I assure you. Uh, family purity. So, uh, there is a mitzvah in the Torah uh, that when a woman is menstruating, the uh, husband and groom do not sleep with each other. Not only that, there are many restrictions of the relationship uh, between a husband and wife during that time. Uh, so, I don't want to give you guys all the details. This could be a whole other class. What are the exact details of the laws uh, that govern that? The Torah laws that govern the status of a husband and wife during this period. Either way, uh, if you account for the average women's cycle of being about 28 to 30 days, about 12 to 13 of those days, they have a very radically different relationship than the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. And that creates a certain ebb and flow or a certain rhythm to Jewish marriages. Uh, now, you'll say, wait a minute, uh, once again, the Torah seems to go put on its uh, pleasure-denying hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a legitimate argument, because indeed, the Torah is telling us, this is something you cannot do at this time. But the Torah is no stranger to doing that. The Torah tells us a lot of pleasures we cannot, we cannot indulge in. Uh, chief among them is cheeseburgers. And I've never had a cheeseburger, but what I've heard, they're pretty good. The idea of cheese and meat doesn't jive well with me, mm-hmm. uh, maybe because I've never had it. Either way, it mm-hmm. seems like it's a pleasure people enjoy. But the Torah says, no, 
lots of places the Torah says no. The Torah says what what you know what you could do in Shabbat, for example. You know, very uh, exhaustive mitzvahs of what restrictions will I do? What will I will I do in Shabbat? Um, so it's, so that's not a foreign idea. However, like all the other pleasure restrictions in the Torah, the result makes you better off than uh, than uh, than you would have been otherwise. Why? Despite the fact that the Torah tells you that you cannot sleep with your spouse during this time, what it what what actually results is a much more balanced, a much more healthier, and much more enduring marriage physically, I mean intimately. Why is that? Because numerous studies, I have four studies in my notes that I can share with you um, if you're so interested. Um, and I give a whole class about this, so it's, it's more details. But as to the regression that happens in the uh, in the bedroom life of married people, uh, where is where where the uh, uh, the frequency and uh, of of how often they're sleeping with each other and the excitement that they each uh, express in that part of their relationship decreases uh, precipitously from the beginning of the marriage, to, you know, until ten years later, twenty years later, hundred years later. Why? It seems likely that because they do not have that same, uh, they, they don't have the same excitement. It's not as exciting as day one, right? It's it's it, you know becomes monotonous, becomes rope, becomes becomes something that is done out of habit. Thus, they lose the excitement, and the relationship oftentimes follows uh, uh, follows where the, this part of the relationship doesn't work, and that leads to other things and infidelity and sexual boredom and divorce. Uh, that happens a lot. Says the Talmud, this is the fact that the Talmud declares this, back to Tractate Nida, this one 31b, it says as follows, why did the Almighty say that there should be this break from, uh, from intercourse uh, uh, throughout uh, the, the month? So that way, uh, people, so the husband and wife don't get sick of each other. Simple. That's what would happen otherwise. And there are many studies to back that up. Uh, one study, for example, that uh, on... On average, um, the the rate of uh, the frequency of intimacy from the first month of a marriage to the last month of the first year of marriage, a mere eleven months later, drops by more than fifty percent, from an average of seventeen times a month to eight times a month, and it goes downhill from then on. And other studies on a much wider uh, uh, time frame uh, make that even uh, ever more stark. What hap- What it was to what it is. What it becomes. Uh, in one of the uh, one of the sources on this one of the scholarship, uh, they wrote that if a couple were to make a like a big jar, and they would put a coin into the jar every time they slept with each other for the first five years of their marriage, and you know it would fill up, I guess, hopefully, right? And then after five years of marriage, they start pulling one out every time they sleep with each other, right? After fifty years, there will still be coins in the jar. That's the, uh, the, the illustration. Uh, and that's very unfortunate. However, as Jews with laws of fa- family purity, we are saved from all of that because we have these very difficult to observe, but very pivotal for the sense of our marriage, these laws and these restrictions. Uh, okay, parenting. So there's a lot of details in parenting. I, in fact, I gave a whole class in parenting called The Ten Commandments of Parenting. I would highly advise, if you have not been on my website, go to rabobi.com. I have a podcast on iTunes. If you have an iPhone, go to the podcast and click Wolby or Google W-L-B-E or what I call my, my website, my, my podcast called This Jewish Life. So just type it in, click subscribe, find the class that's 10 commandments of parenting. It's pivotal, 
crucial information the Torah gives us, 10 different aspects of, of what it means to be a Jewish parent and how to maximize the potential of your child via your parenting. Of course, it's not on your hands as a parent, uh, but whatever is on your hands, you could, you could, you know, a parent could guide their child, could direct their child, could, you know, could improve their child's lives uh, if they know what they're doing. And they could also screw it up, of course, as we know. We all, we all know those kind of kids. We've all met those kids. Uh, so either way, there's a lot to talk about that. Uh, but let us move on. Uh, Uh, raising children as well, we know we talked about that as well. Important the, the importance of instilling Jewish values and Jewish practice from early on. Uh, we're, that death is coming; it's coming for all of us. Uh, I'm sorry. Don't rush it. Yes, put your seatbelt on. I'll put your phone off while you drive. Uh, yeah, and in life, you know, there's, there's, there's life, we're skipping all of life itself, but life itself, it's about that mission that we talked about, living life for a purpose, living life for a mission. Uh, grandparenting, okay, that's like uh, parenting without all the hassles. Uh, if, you know, if I knew how fun it was to be a grandparent, I would have skipped the whole parenting. Remember that line? Uh, that was someone's line. Let's get to death. Okay, so death is kind of the punctuation mark. It's the culmination of life, you know. Uh, if if you look at someone how they die and what state they die, we can know a lot about their about their life. You know, uh, if you see an old person in 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 misery or in in a hospice or in a hospital bed and they're all alone, you kind of say, okay, what do you really live for? You know, where your where's your family? Where's your kid? Oh, they're not. Oh, oh, what what kind of life have you lived? And this is what you have to show for it. As opposed to if you invest a lot in your life. Uh, you know, and then towards the end, you kind of get, you get paid off. You know, you might have, uh, if you have, uh, I mentioned I'm one of nine kids, you know, my parents have more than 30 grandkids already and they're just getting started, you know. Uh, there's more coming, like, any week now, my sisters do, but they're first. Um, so yes, it's, it's, it's investment, but that's what life, life is about. Life is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, if we expect immediate returns, we're probably not going to have much success in life, you know, but if we get comfortable with the idea of delayed gratification, nothing does that more than having children, because I assure you the beginning is not gratifying, at least, well, parts of it are, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's a lot of work for very little payback, but ultimately, the idea is that you invest now and you reap the benefits later. So death is like that as well. We look at, at what happens with someone uh, before they die and as they're dying throughout that difficult chapter in everyone's life as being a reflection or, or at least being a sum of, of, who, of how they lived as, uh, you know, how they lived their lives. Uh, and also we look at the day of death as a significant milestone, obviously, uh, in someone's life. The, the Mishnah tells us, don't believe in yourself the day you die. Uh, this goes back to the idea of complacency. You know, uh, there was a great a leader of the Jewish people who was a high priest for 80 years, who eventually, in, in his later years, um, uh, kind of went off, so to speak, and you know, became a heathen. And he's obviously the prime example of the idea, don't be sure of yourself. Don't believe in yourself the day you die. Until you no longer have the opportunity to do evil, you're never sure that you won't be. You're never sure. You could hope, you know, you could assume, perhaps. Don't be sure. 
Don't believe in yourself on a day to day. If you constantly focus on growing, on becoming better, on improving, then you can hope to never regress. The second you feel like you plateaued, now you can just coast your way through life. That's when regression starts. I've always said, life is like a... Life's like a... Is that what I've said? No, I've never said that. Anyone wants to give a guess? What's life like? Life's like a treadmill. If you're not progressing, if you're not moving forward, you're regressing. You're moving back. Or perhaps we can tweak and say life is like those those bratty kids that are running up the down escalator. That unless you're moving up, you're moving down. That's maybe a better one. Life's like a down escalator. doesn't sound as good. Down escalator. Think if there was a one word for down escalator, maybe it would work. You know, a descending es- escalator. Huh? A desescalator. <laughs> Life's like a desescalator. Oh, yeah, genius. Brilliant. Life's like a desescalator. i got to tweet that out tonight. Uh, okay, that, so, that, so that, that's that. Death. What happens after you die? What then? Now, what I'm going to tell you now, I want to make a quick disclaimer. This is not from experience. I don't know about it. I don't know, but what I'm, what I'm going to share with you is from what the Jewish sources say, not from what I personally have experienced. It's supposed to be a joke, guys. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, okay, so when someone dies, so first importantly, what happens over here with the dead body? So death by definition is separation of soul and body. The soul is the software to the body's hardware, right? The second you take the hardware, the software out of the hardware, you still have a phone, right? You still have the physical uh, uh, vessel that incorporated the software, but it's useless. You know, it starts rotting right away. Uh, So in in, in that analogy, we think the soul is the spark, it's the energy, it's, it's the software. That makes the body work. Once you remove that, well, the software is no longer in the hardware. The hardware is useless. It's, it's cold. It's a brick when you brick a phone. It's a, a term um, that I came very close to actually fulfilling in actuality with this phone. I tried to custom flash a, a custom ROM of Android. It was a disaster. Uh, either way, if you call me, my phone just randomly hangs up in the middle if that's because it's some shaky firmware, I think they call it. The, the, the fact that I don't know the actual name for what my phone is, that maybe will tell you why it's that state that it is. Either way, uh, so what happens to the body? So Jewish Jewish philosophy, or Jewish law even, says that we have to bury with various as quickly as possible. Right? We don't believe in languishing over the dead body. Right? Dead body has to be buried, and the, uh, the next of kin have to mourn. Nowadays, if a terrible tragedy happens, terrible, it should never happen to any one of us or anyone that we know, of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a child, of a child losing a parent. Disaster. Right? What do you tell the child? What do you tell the kid? Right? All these questions. Like, what do you do with the child? First thing that everyone does is they run to Toys R Us. Right? They run to Toys R Us and they get, they get the kid something to make them forget about it. Let's give them the Xbox. Or let, let, let them, you know, let, let them... Uh, you try to rehabilitate, and that's a mistake. I'm not saying don't buy your kids uh, uh, toys or don't buy kids. It's a mistake. The attitude's a mistake. In Judaism, we say we face tragedy. 
we address it. If someone dies, we mourn. There's a seven-day mourning in the Shiva. There's a 30-day mourning. There's an entire year of mourning. Where we say the Kaddish, where uh, um, my, um, my, my wife's grandfather just passed away a couple of months ago uh, at the age of 96. So throughout this year, there are laws of mourning for the entire year. Uh, for um, like, for it's one of the examples is that you cannot shave not for a whole year, but for a minimum of thirty days. So you see, ever see someone like an overgrown beard, uh, that may be one of the reasons. Additionally, you don't buy new clothing for a year. You don't go to parties for a year. So, so you really address it seriously. What what happens if you don't? You know what happens? The pain may be covered up, but it's dormant. It's there. It's there, and it's it's ripe for uh, reemergence. Uh, okay, so well, let's go back to the soul. Can so I address that just a second? Sure. And the only reason I want to do that is because the, the pain, my mother was 91. Yeah. And she went to sleep on the phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, she wasn't ill. The following week, I was studying. So um, the the laws of mourning are laws, mm-hmm. and they're um, they're laws that are intended to create an atmosphere um, where mourning is possible. Um, if someone doesn't, you know, feels like you know they their their parents lived a full life, 
mm-hmm. and they have no regrets about that, and they don't miss them, or they don't, or maybe they do miss them, but they're okay with that. That's that's okay. Uh, there's no, you know, there's a there's a mitzvah to not like all the things that I said are things that are going to be very conducive to mourning, um, but not to escape the mourning, not to run away or conceal it, uh, but. The actual uh, degree of, of grief, well, that's obviously very different. You know, I, I um, uh, about, uh, I guess it was three or three, three and a half months ago, I was in Canada, um, and my, um, um, one of the rabbis in town, uh, his parent, uh, father died at the age of, I think he was in his 90s, uh, who had lived a very full and robust life, and, you know, and I went to sit shiva with him, um, to visit with him in the shiva house, and he he you know he wasn't managing. He he had said like he felt like he feels this like gaping hole in his heart, and he he has no he wasn't expecting it. So I think everyone responds differently, and that's I think that's okay. But either way, the idea behind Jewish mourning is to mourn and to create the atmosphere where mourning is possible. Okay, what? Yes, uh, this on like. So, like, you know, when someone dies, sometimes, like, if they, they drown in a pool, they, like, don't have oxygen, right? So, they're, like, say they're, they're dead, like, like three months, but then they re- revive them. So, I guess, does the, does the body or Hashem know, I guess, when to, I mean, I don't know how it works. Does he know the body now, or does he know when to release the soul from the body? Like he truly knows that the body's dead and will not come back. Like he can, he can, he knows the state of everything in the world. Like what's going to happen in the future and past? Like he knows how to, you know. Okay, so whatever you ask the question is what Hashem knows. It's a very hard to question the answer. Uh, but either way, but just to to address one part of your question that that, that I think I for sure can answer uh, is that is that the body is not the release one releasing the soul. Uh, in fact, if the soul had its way, it would leave any, every every second. The soul hates being in strength in the body, but it's the Almighty. Uh, but I think what you're talking about is when someone is maybe, um, you know, maybe clinically dead, yeah. but they're revived like a near death yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, so th- that's a kind of a, f- a fascinating uh, area of, of study because if they revive a bull, do they did they really go to heaven? And can they really? They really revive what? It, it, you, you, you they're say, revivable. A revivable. Yeah. It's a revivable. Like, I'm thinking like, uh, of like this big bull who's like, oh, Betsy died or whatever. Barney died. No, but people say, you know, like, oh, I saw heaven, right? I saw this and that. Yeah, so, listen, I'm not an expert about this. I know I know a lot of people do kind of talk about this area as being some sort of like a, a way to kind of separate soul and body and then get some sort of consciousness of, a, of an untethered soul. And they do say like this book, Life After Death or whatever, Life After Life, whatever they say, Life After Life, uh, where they, they interview like hundreds and hundreds of people that had near-death experiences and they seem to know things and they seem to all have kind of the same the same experience. Um I don't know. I'm not, not an expert. Uh, the Talmud does account for one near-death experience, uh, a very detailed death experience. It doesn't give us the the, the sensory feeling of like the whole white and the light and the whatnot. Uh, but it does say that uh, one of the rabbis died, but then was revived, uh, and he did come with a story of what he saw on a much deeper level, not just like on a, on a superficial level. 
very, very interesting um, uh, narrative in the Talmud. It just seems like, you know, that's happened to so many people. We get, we only hear of, like, a, a very small percentage actually saying what it was like. like what, yeah, it's like, I, I don't know. This is the... the it's the, almost the, like Hashem, like, if you revive a bull, then it's like he makes you, he erases that if you come back to life again. If you don't... I also think that that the soul on its yeah. own, that experience doesn't translate in human vernacular. Just like I would tell you um, to try to think of another color. You can't if you haven't experienced it. Yeah. And if someone was blind, God forbid, you can't describe to them what yeah. color is like. It's, it, it's something... Right. So so we talk about not too bright. It's, it's, it's a different... It's a different wavelength. Um, so unless you've actually experienced it and you have the tools of conveyance, you have the the vernacular, you know, you have overlapping experience. It's 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 not easy. So that's why I think even if a soul does experience something, it won't translate necessarily if the soul has now the the tools of the body. So I don't know. I no, my, my, my the correct answer I think. Is this might be an, an instance where no, the correct so answer is I don't know. I, I've heard from doctors before. It's like people, when the people think they've seen like heaven until their souls are completely really in heaven, that they might have seen like like their brains like losing whatever like blood or oxygen, so that it tricks them. They're not really in heaven until that, you know until they're truly. Yeah, heaven. I don't. I, I, that's why I, I don't know. I think that's the right. But I do know that there have been cases where the soul has had, or at least the person in some way, has knowledge of information that they could not have yeah. known. Yeah. Like uh, like some particulars about the operating room that they were lying yeah, upon, or stuff that were happening elsewhere outside the building. So that that that's something where, which I'm not, I'm not yeah. trying to deny yeah. um, the veracity of, uh, or reject, or repudiate in any way. I'm just saying I don't know. I think it's interesting. Uh, I think maybe it uh, it uh, warrants further examination. But as I'll say, when it comes to their experiences, we do have one record in the Talmud. So and there it's very detailed and and it's specific and deep ideas, not just you know experiential ideas. Okay, so what happens to the body? So um, I'm gonna do this uh, quickly because it could be its whole other class, and if I spend time on it in the whole as a whole class. We'll be here till at least ten o'clock. Uh, but I, you know, I'm not going to run through it, but I'm not going to do it with as much detail as I would have otherwise. Okay? If y'all want some supplements, you go to rabbi.com. Google what happens after you die. What happens after you die? And I think I gave at least one or two classes on that subject. Interesting. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Google it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so um, uh, so we have a uh, world to come questions about heaven, hell, reincarnation, resurrection. So it seems like one of three things can happen after you die. Uh, it's very important here the chronology because it, it's all one hodgepodge. When someone dies, one of three things can happen to them. Two of them are good, one of them is not good. However, I want to tell you guys that the thing that that is not good, we might think is actually the best. The best option in our minds might be actually the worst option. Option number one and two are both good. And what we call them uh, uh, loosely as heaven and hell. Both of them are fantastic places to go. Hmm. 
uh, heaven and hell, they have different names, but the Gehenom, uh, it's important for us to uh, to not um, take it at face value, I haven't said loosely translated, because we have preconceived notions as what what that means. But as I said loosely translated as heaven, we talk about the Garden of Eden, or paradise, uh, that's one place, and Gehenna, or purgatory, or whatever, hell might be the other place. Those are both very good places to go. And the worst place to go is what's called um, reincarnation. For the soul to be reintroduced, the reincarnation, that also has a lot of baggage associated with that word. Uh, um, but what it does mean is that the soul is reinserted into another body. Now, a soul and a body are opposites. Souls and bodies do not like each other. They are not friends. It's not harmonious. There is disunity amongst the soul and the body. Okay? The soul hates the body. The body is really the antithesis of a soul. <clears throat> Thus, once the soul is out of the body, it's liberated. It is, uh, it's freed from prison. And we don't feel that because what our feelings are more associated with our body. We don't feel our soul. How do we know we don't feel our soul? Because when we eat matzah, we feel like we're chewing crackers. We don't feel like we're in Egypt witnessing 10 miraculous plagues. We don't feel that. Our soul feels that. What we feel is crackers. Right? But, so our soul cannot stand our body. Our body, cannot stand, our body is really the opposite of our soul. Right? Our soul hates being here. Right? We all have souls within ourselves that are all seeking nothing more than to be taken out of this uh, 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 tormenting bond that it has with our body. Okay? Does our soul like being our body? Yes or no? An unequivocal no. Thus, death, big picture, death is a bad thing because it's a loss of opportunity, but for our soul, it's, 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 it's just, it's finally, it's a gasp of air after being, right, it's freedom. That's why the worst option is to once again be put back in prison. It's like you finally made it out of a 30-year sentence in the worst prison in America or a 75-year sentence and you get out and you go stand in front of the tribunal and say, you know what? Another 75-year sentence. That's the worst option. Reintroduction. I don't like the word. Let's say reinsertion into another body. That's the worst option. The best option is where a soul re- re- uh, emerges from the body completely unsullied, completely untarnished, completely unblemished and perfect, hearkening back to the child before he's born. As we mentioned, he makes him swear that you will preserve the soul in its purity. If the soul emerges in its purity, completely untainted, by a 75-year stint in, in, in a body, it goes to what's called paradise, or Gan Eden, or Garden of Eden, or heaven, or whatever word you want to say, which I like to call a glorified waiting room. It's a wonderful place to wait. Mm-hmm. It's got all the amenities. Mm-hmm. But it's still a waiting room. It's not an end destination. Right. That's the best option. The second best option is where the soul completed its mission, However, it has some blemishes. I mean, it's not totally pure. It has some taint and some sully, some stench of sin, and that needs to be purified. Thus, in Judaism, the Gehenna, the Purgatory, whatever word you want to say, 
is a maximum of 12 months. It cannot last more than 12 months. Right? It cannot last more than 12 months. Uh, the maximum of 12 months, but it usually would be less than that, where it is purified. It's, 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 it's whitewashed. It's like, okay, you get out of prison, and let's say you get out of prison, back to our analogy, you get out of prison, okay, you're good, you don't need to go back to prison, but you're a little dirty. You need the haircut, your body's covered in lice and whatnot, take a power wash, is a power wash, maybe like a power wash that they clean walls with, like, that's how you do, you know, they, they, or they open up, I'll get to you in a second, Rochelle, they open up the, uh, uh, the fire hydrant, they put the guy in front of the fire hydrant, he's like, ah, so much water, ah, so painful, but they're just cleaning him, it's the cleansing process, yes. Anything to do with the twelve months of the eleven months um, of mourning? Yes, 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 yes. So, so the yard side or the year of mourning corresponds to the year uh, uh, on Earth on Terra Firma uh, corresponds to the twelve months or t- eleven and twelve months of of the soul. Uh, yes, so the child would be in mourning uh, corresponding to the twelve months that the that the, the father could potentially be in this uh, purgatory, this this process. Yeah? We good? That's why it's, it's, it's good, but it's also not as good as it could have potentially been. Right? The best option is you remove from prison, you're clean, you, you look good, you're, you're good. Then, then you moved over to the clean, where the clean people go. That's right, glorified rating room. Uh, now, if you have to go back to prison, right, you have to do the whole process for you. You got to start from the beginning. And once again, the guy says, and we're warning you again, your soul is pure. The soul, bring it back to us intact. And you guys know those 75 years. And if they do it, great. If not, go back to prison. Is there a Well, there's, uh, I don't know, maybe, hopefully. Um, uh, but it seems like uh, there's a reduction. The soul's smaller, it's less powerful. Uh, the way I like to visualize it, now I have no proof to this, but this is just a visualization that I have, that, uh, uh, that imagine the soul emerges with so many blemishes, okay, but, then it's, but it's brought back into the world as pure again, right? So what happens to all those, what happens to those blemishes? Remember, it doesn't, it's not going to the purgatory, it's not going to the whitewashing place, right? So how does the soul get purified for its next round, right? Next round, it's, once again, it starts off as pure. The answer is it's reduced. Like if if you were to imagine like a rotten apple, but it's or a rotten potato, right? It's got those nasty mm-hmm. spots. So you cut around it, and now it's clean. Well, what happened? Well, that part's gone, but the actual potato is smaller. You know, like when you open up like a thing of five pounds of potatoes, but then you start peeling it, you're like, this is not five pounds. It's like three pounds, and then the rest of that nasty, slimy stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> so 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 that's that's how I have visualized. I have no proof to that effect. But either way, uh, it's pure when it goes in again, but I think it's less potent. And correspondingly, the, the, correspondingly, the mission that it will be tasked with will be smaller. So I think progressively get easier and easier for you to finish your mission, but the results are, are, are more diminished as well. Like, it's less Im- impressive, you know. <laughs> uh, so those are the three options that can happen after someone, someone dies, right? There's the best option, then there's the... Um, Next best option, and then there's the worst option. Uh, one, two, and three. Now, what happens in the waiting room? Waiting room or waiting? What are we waiting for? So it's a very comfortable waiting room. It's very plush chairs, and it's got all the newspapers, and right? These are all uh, euphemistic or uh, allegorical. Coffee machine, Coffee machine right. 
like one of those uh, like all you can drink with the soda machines, like with the ice and all the different flavors. And they have a they have a relationship with Pepsi and Coke. You don't just <laughs> you don't just have to treat Pepsi. Um, so yes, uh, now what are they waiting for? Uh, so what do we have to guess the Mason? This is a core principle of Judaism. If you remember, we spoke about the principles of Judaism with the core beliefs of Judaism. Uh, one of them is that uh, that bodies and souls will be reunited once again. Bodies and soul will be reunited once again. Right? That is a core belief of Judaism. It's 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 demonstrated in the Torah many 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 times. In fact, the Talmud brings about I think about twenty or twenty five. I lost count after like fifteen. Proofs from the Torah that the bodies will once again be reunited with those, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why we don't, we don't, we don't, uh, uh, we have to bury, we don't, uh, we don't believe in cremation, we don't destroy the body because the body will still be be used. The software will once again be reinserted into the Torah. It'll be with like an update. Nice. So that's like you, you have Windows ninety eight and now Windows two thousand new update. <laughs> We're just continuing the. Uh, uh, and that's the, the analogy. Because, you know, like as we sit here, we're breathing in people who've been here before. <laughs> so it's like, does the, does the body must have to come back together physically in order for that to happen? Yeah, just for like. People who live hundreds of years. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's if the body once, once roamed, it can roam again. Just like if the computer once worked, it'd be very easy to make it work again. Just think about childbirth or just visualize how no, no, not childbirth, but child <laughs> conception and how that brings about a life. Uh, how much more easier would it be to take the life that already existed and just kick it back into high gear? So that's what we're waiting for. Bodies being reinserted into, uh, into uh, I'm sorry, souls being reinserted into bodies. That's when the ultimate judgment comes. That's when we talk about uh, ushering in the idea of the world to come. World to come is a destination. That's what we're all shooting for, world to come. Uh, what, is the, what is that like? That is some sort of transcendent experience it's something totally different than anything we could possibly imagine. It's a it's a world of souls. It's it, it's the end game for uh, uh, for 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 us humans. Hopefully, we'll all get there. Um, the Talmud says, "All of Israel has a portion of what to come." Righteous Gentiles also could have a portion of what to come, which is again different. Our religion is different than all the all other religions. All other religions are exclusive, while Judaism is inclusive. Uh, Christianity does not allow anyone who does not believe in JC uh, or for, for forever be damned, right? That's what they say. So uh, the, is, the, the Islams, the Muslims, Islams, the Muslims, or the uh, or Islam. That's funny. <laughs> Laughing at my expense. Well, I think you just melded two words that meant the same thing together. No, I said Islams. It's like saying the Judaisms is <laughs> Judaisms is. Um, uh, so they believe that you either are Dar al-Islam or Dar al-Kharb, either with us or against us, you're a nation of Islam, nation of sword. And Judaism, we say, the righteous of the Gentiles have a portion of the world to come. You don't have to be Jewish to be good, although it's a lot easier to be good when you're Jewish. Um, because it's easier to have a certain eternal uh, uh, nature uh, and makeup um, of your of your of your reality, so that's that. That's what happens after you die, and that's the that, that's what we're looking for. This ultimate end game of triatamitim, body be resold into the soul, the judgment, uh, and uh, and uh, the the final end game is going to be what we call the world to come. Uh, this transcendent experience that hopefully we will 
uh, also all of us be able to partake in. That's that. Life cycles, birth to earth and beyond. That was perfect. Thank you. I have one suggestion. Don't be mad at me. Under marriage, y'all left out a ketubah. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I have, I have a lot more than one suggestion. I didn't put them together. Oh. Uh-huh. I, okay, I told you I would, I would skip the whole responsibility thing. Clearly, <laughs> you did. Uh, and, I would, and I would talk a lot more pre-birth and whatever. Either way, that's that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that.